This is WexCast, the podcast of the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Melissa Starker, PR and Content Manager for the Wex. Last month brought a visit from Dave Zirin, sports editor for The Nation and author of books including A People's History of Sports in the United States and the recent release Jim Brown, Last Man Standing. For this WexCast, we share the audio of his conversation with director of film video Dave Philippi about the intersection of sports and politics. Zyron promises early on that he aims to engage everyone from sports fanatics to people who'd rather shave their heads with a cheese grater than talk about sports. And his conversation with Dave and our audience delivers, covering topics from Colin Kaepernick and Muhammad Ali to FIFA and the growing concerns of parents about letting their kids play football. I'm Dave Philippi, the director of film and video here at the Wexner Center. Um, thank you for joining us this evening. There will not be any film um, being shown tonight, and we might not even talk about any film, so this will be kind of a, a rare um, event that I'm involved in. But we're very excited um, to have our guest, uh, Dave Zyron, here with us this evening. Um, it, it seems like we are presented with almost daily examples of what a useful and powerful lens sports can be for examining our most pressing issues, whether they concern race, gender, higher education, economics, government corruption, and so forth. We all know that just a few weeks ago, the Ohio State football program became the backdrop for issues around domestic violence and the always uneasy marriage between big-time college athletics and higher education. Last week, Nike's decision to make exiled NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick the face of the 30th anniversary of their Just Do It campaign led to shoe burnings on one side and praise as a bold move on the other. And just this weekend, tennis great Serena Williams brought heightened attention to the different ways men and women are viewed and treated even within the same sport. And we could not have a better guest with us this evening to discuss these recent examples and more than Dave Zirin. Dave is a sports editor for The Nation magazine, the first in its 150-year history, and the host of the Edge of Sports podcast. He is the go-to voice for outlets such as NPR, MSNBC, and Democracy Now! when events move from the sports page to the front page. His writing has also appeared in such outlets as The New York Times, The Washington Post, Vibe magazine, and many others. And Dave is a prolific author of, simply put, some of the greatest books about sports of his generation, and considered in total, his output serves as a definitive word on the history of sports and the broader culture in our country. His books include The John Carlos Story from 2011, Brazil's Dance with the Devil, The World Cup, The Olympics, and The Struggle for Democracy from 2014, and his two most recent books, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable, co-written with Michael Bennett, a defensive tackle now with the Philadelphia Eagles, and Jim Brown, Last Man Standing, about the iconic Cleveland Brown and controversial activist, both released earlier this year. That is not an exhaustive list by any means, and I recommend all of his books, but perhaps my favorite is his 2009 book, A People's History of Sports in the United States, part of the late Howard Zinn's People's History series. Before Dave takes the stage, I would like to thank Nicole Kraft with OSU Sports and Society Initiative for supporting this program and helping to spread the word, and likewise, I would like to thank my colleague Alana Ryder in the WEX's Education Department. One last note, on October 8th, Columbus-born author Will Haygood will be here for the Director's Dialogue event, Tigerland, Columbus at the Intersection of Sports and Race, around his recent book on Columbus East High's historic baseball and basketball seasons in 1968. 
Finally, I would like to thank Dave for taking time out of his very busy schedule to be with us this evening. If one goes by TV and sports radio ratings, Columbus is just about the most rabid sports market in the country, and we'll see what that means for tonight's conversation and Q&A after. And of course, Dave will sign copies of his books outside the store following the conversation. Now, please join me in welcoming Dave Zirin. Damn, <laughs> that was that was very nice. I, I, can I just like record that and play it, it for it my is father-in-law? Being that so, would be fantastic. Uh, I can I can send you a copy. Well, um, I know for a lot of people, it's like why you even mentioned some of your friends were like, why are you going to be at the Wexner Center tonight? Um, but you know, we're we're a contemporary art center, and we're here to um, examine the issues of our day, usually through the lens of art, but. Um, you're a writer, and um, we couldn't be more thrilled to, to have you here. So, um, And there's been a lot to talk about lately. Really? <laughs> At Ohio State? Has there been stuff going on? No idea. Um, I, I also think like this should just be the first of many sports events here at the Wexner Center. And I was just kidding. I was like, like the fear. No, no. <laughs> like sports will colonize the Wexner we're, we're Center. We're working on it. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm looking forward for, to the Rocky film series. Which would, I'd be really into. That might not happen. Oh, but. it's too bad. <laughs> Maybe Damn. the first one. See, and you thought we wouldn't talk about movies. Yeah, there we go. But if there are any questions about the Rocky movies in the q and A, I'm, I'm happy to take them. Um, but before we start, though, like something that helps me a lot is if I just sort of uh, get to know who the audience is a little bit and explain something about myself. Like, how many people here consider yourselves like rabid sports fans? Okay. How many people consider themselves casual sports fans? You know, you, you follow what's going on, but, you know, with limits. And how many of you would rather shave your head with a cheese grater than hear somebody talk about sports? Ah. Alana, put your hand up. Ah. I'm sorry, what, what's your name, if I could ask? Anya? Well, see, the goal for tonight's discussion, hopefully, and this is how I want it to be judged, is if it's something that appeals to the rabid sports fan, the casual sports fan, and Anya. If we can do that, then we'll have gotten, we'll, we'll have done our job, and we'll have done it well. And I, I grew up one of those rabid sports fans uh, in New York City. Uh, I played just about every sport I could, except uh, for golf, which is not a sport. Um, <laughs> no, this is just my own personal belief, is that anything... No argument here. Yeah. Anything that you can gain weight or smoke cigarettes while doing is not a sport. That's... <laughs> <laughs> That's my line in the sand, and or in the sand trap. And I, you know, I, I never gave too much thought to the politics of sports, which is what I write about, um, until 1996, when a basketball player named Mahmoud Abdul Raouf made the decision that he wasn't going to stand for the national anthem. Sound familiar? And Raouf made this decision, and he was asked about it by a reporter. And a reporter said, don't you realize that that flag is a symbol of freedom and democracy throughout the world? And if you see the, the footage of this, Raouf has this look in his eye like, should I say something? <laughs> I think I'm gonna say something and get in a lot of trouble. And he said, well, it may be a symbol of freedom and democracy to some, but it's a symbol of oppression and tyranny to others. And when Raouf said that, it was like, I was in college at the time, and the sports world just turned upside down. I mean, ESPN was like, Raouf spits on the flag, booyah, din in it, din in it. And, and I was just all in at that point. And since then, I've tried to 
figure out ways to integrate sports and politics, sports and society, sports and some of the radical athletes who far too often get erased from the history books. And I feel like it's, it's particularly important, not just for the sports fan, because sometimes that's people think like, oh, you're educating sports fans about politics through sports, like it's some kind of ideological Trojan horse or something. But it's not just for the sports fan. Like I, I did a talk um, in a city I don't want to name, uh, it was Philadelphia, and, <laughs> and it was at a, uh, a, a, a radical bookstore, an anarchist bookstore. And I went in there to do a talk, and it was for a book I wrote called What's My Name, Fool? And the cover of the book is a big Muhammad Ali face. And I walked in, and uh, the person behind the counter, a very pleasant young man, I said, hey, I'm Dave Zirin. And he said, but you're white. And I said, well, yeah, last I checked. (laughs) And he said, but isn't that you on the cover of the book? (laughs) And I had to say, no, that's Muhammad Ali. (laughs) Not me, uh, and this will be the only time I'm ever confused for Muhammad Ali. <laughs> and, and I just remember looking around that store and seeing all these uh, left-wing books and posters and resistance icons and thinking, my goodness, this person doesn't know the most famous war resistor in the history of war. So that's really the goal, and that's what I try to do, mm-hmm. is to take these two worlds of sports and politics, sports and resistance figures in the world of sports and weave that history back together. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I always find interesting is when you encounter people who, you know, just they not only aren't interested in sports, but really, you know, um, have a great deal of animosity towards it. It, it. it seems like it's such a big part of our culture. And, you know, like you just mentioned, it intersects with our culture in so many um, interesting ways that to just dismiss it, it seems like it would be dismissing, you know, music or, you know, these like really broad parts of our, our culture. And I mean, it's true. You would never hear somebody say, um, I really dislike the films of Francis Ford Coppola, therefore, the hell with film. Yeah. You would never hear somebody say that. Or you would never hear somebody dismiss the beauty of architecture, even, even if a tremendous amount of exploitation of workers went into building that architecture. Um, you could at least recognize the beauty of it. And I think we have a much more binary view of sports where people either love it or they hate it and resent it. And I think the reason for that is is, is it's rooted in people's experiences with youth sports, which can be so negative to so many people. The experience, and I, I remember this, of being picked last, or even worse, second to last, because then we called that the real loser in elementary <laughs> school. Very, very nice when we played dodgeball. And, and it's... A statistic that blew my mind recently was that um, 70% of kids who play youth sports quit by the age of 13. And the number one reason they quit is they say, it's not fun anymore. So for a lot of young people, the first rebellion of their entire life is to say, I don't want to play. And that's very sad. And it would be great if we lived in a world where play was something that everybody felt like they had access to, even if they weren't experts, and you didn't have adults uh, putting the pressure on these kids to basically be mini LeBrons mm-hmm. uh, every time they take the court. I mean, and I, I learned this firsthand this past year. I coached my son's uh, youth basketball team, and you know we were unbeaten. And isn't that crazy that that's the first thing I say, that we were unbeaten? <laughs> it was like, yeah, we killed. But, but it, it, really, it really was. Um, I noticed you put it on your bio. On I your put it on my bio. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, top of my CV. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's, it's remarkable 
like when you see the way uh, parents take youth sports and twist it and turn it into something that's so beyond the boundaries of anything you would describe as play. But I think that rebellion that 70% of people have when they say I don't want to play anymore is, is why it's what's rooted in why people say not only do I not play sports not only do I not watch sports but I even take issue with the idea that there's something to learn through sports yeah and, um, and we'll, we'll get on to some of the events of the day very quickly but I mean I, I do understand why some people don't like sports I mean I think um, you know your a lot of your work is about what's wrong with sports you know and um, I think it is interesting, you know, this, you know, like, you know, higher or college football is a perfect example. Um, you know, I have season tickets to Ohio State, and I can perfectly understand why people think, you know, there's many, many problems with it, you know, and um, that, um, you know, why people keep coming back to sports, yet someone like you who kind of, you know, makes it, or your career is kind of pointing out the hypocrisy and, and some of the deep, you know, problems that it represents as well. Oh yeah, and 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 I I know people who wrestle with this all the time, like people who have said, I, you know, I am never going to watch the National Football League again, not because Donald Trump says don't watch the National Football League, but they don't want to watch it because of brain injuries, and they feel like they're somehow party to uh, the the mechanism of concussions and and the way it churns people out who just aren't the same anymore once their time in the NFL is done. So they they're just like I'm never watching again. And then I call them up on Sunday and I say, what are you doing? And they're like, watching the NFL. <laughs> and it's almost like their guilty little secret, like they're doing it in the bathroom with the door locked. And it's like, what are you doing in there? Leave me alone, <laughs> I'm watching the NFL. And, and th that's part of it too. Or I know people who have critiques of the NCAA as an institution that's highly exploitative, but they still love college football. And so, I mean, oftentimes, I think people live with both of these things in their minds at the same time. And I'm of the belief that if you have a critique of what's wrong with sports, then you could challenge what you don't like about it to change. So instead of disregarding college football or college basketball altogether, you could start like investigating uh, athletes who've tried to organize to make these relationships a little more just and figure out ways to support them in addition to just consuming the product. Um, I think so much has happened recently in, in sports um, that we should maybe start unpacking um, some recent events. Nice. It'll be like sports radio, everybody. Yeah. It'll be great. Let, let's start with the most recent first. Um, it was just an incredible weekend um, with the final between um, Serena Williams and I, I'm blanking on her first name, but, but Osaka. Naomi Osaka. Yeah. Um, and how many people saw the end of the match? And, and, um, and how many people are aware who Serena Williams is? We'll go there too. Okay, just making sure, because I saw enough hands that didn't go up. Um, during, you, Dave was nice enough to meet with some OSU students earlier today, and um, you made the great point that uh, we've never really seen something like during a match or during an mm -hmm. event where Serena was like right to the judge talking about this is because I'm a woman, you're treating yeah. me different. And um, it was an incredible um, moment, and you know, like this one of the biggest stages in sports mm -hmm. to see something like that unfold on live TV. Yeah, it wasn't just that, like her saying right in the middle of the match, this is because I'm a woman, if I was a man, you never would penalize me for calling you a thief. I mean, that was the, the bad word against decorum that Serena Williams used. She called the, the umpire a thief. Like, I grew up watching John McEnroe. I mean, thief would have qualified as a compliment in terms of the things. <laughs> that he said to judges. Now, I, I really do think I learned most of my four-letter words from John McEnroe <laughs> and Jimmy Connors. And, and, I, and I, I never knew that 
the head could be shoved up, you know, just it was <laughs> just so, so much that I learned from those wonderful gentlemen. And, and so for them to come down so hard on Serena Williams, it also speaks to a history of the way that she has been policed as a black woman, not just as a woman, but as a black woman in tennis in this traditionally white space that her and her sister Venus have had to navigate for so many years. But that, that whole match got me, as my, my son would say, all up in my feelings uh, because, I know, it's because then you had the spectacle of afterwards, like the crowd booing and Serena Williams having to tell the crowd to please stop, give Naomi this moment. And then when they asked Naomi Osaka, like, how does it feel to be the first uh, Japanese woman to win a major title? First of all, that was bothersome because she's actually, she's Haitian and Japanese, and their, their erasure of her Haitian heritage is a problem in and of itself. But she said, I don't want to answer that question. Instead, I just want to say, I'm sorry. And it's just like your heart just like broke for her. This 19-year-old just won the US Open, and she said, I'm sorry, because they both knew how much this had been marred by this judge. And then Serena goes to the press conference. And at one point in the press conference, she was actually asked the question, um, how are you going to explain your anger on this day to your child? And I'm just like, they would never ask Roger Federer. It's like, so how are you going to explain what happened today to your kid? I mean, people would be like, what? That's the weirdest question in the world. But that, that's what was thrown at Serena Williams, and she handled it with humor and grace, and she ended her press conference. I've never seen anything like this. I've been doing this like 15 years or so. I've never seen anything like this. She ended her press conference with this uh, clarion call for women to be unapologetically uh, angry if they feel angry, unapologetically stand up for yourself if you feel like you're being wronged. And she said, maybe my generation won't be able to benefit uh, from being able to express our emotions, but the next generation will. And the press corps broke out in spontaneous applause as if she was like Norma Ray holding up the union sign. And it was, I've never seen anything like that before. So in a lot of ways, Serena lost, but she also won because I think she gave us a moment, the likes of which uh, we'll never forget. Do you think, um, you know, I always hate when people try to say, who's the greatest American athlete of all time? I mean, she's certainly in the conversation. Um, and I mean, obviously, I think some of the, the reasons why. Do, do you think she's finally reached the point in her career where she um, has transcended some of um, um, the ways people have, have viewed her and, and mistreated her during her career, and is being finally recognized as, as a, a figure that that kind of towering historic figure that she is. Well, in some respects she is, but also people may have seen a torrent of racist cartoons mm -hmm. came out in the aftermath of the match as well, like the sort of things that you'd expect to see like in a Klan newspaper in the 1920s about what, what she went through. One of them was particularly bizarre in that it presented Naomi Osaka in the background as blonde as, as the, the victim of this. So, I mean, so, so in, and I think this has to do with how we view race and racism in this country more broadly, because it's not like the case that it's just been unending progress, but we've seen in this Trump era, although it precedes Trump, how you can also go backwards in it to a large effect. So for Serena Williams, she's constantly navig navigating this, this, this white space 
where, which is tennis, which um, at times has welcomed her success and at other times has treated her as an unwelcome guest. And I think what she has done is expand the audience for tennis to such a degree that she has acolytes around the world who you know, rise and fall with Serena Williams. And that's a beautiful thing to see. But as far as the tennis world itself, I mean, I think, I think you saw that with this judge this weekend. She is still fighting for that place, even though she holds a position as, to me, unarguably the greatest tennis player to ever take the court. And that, to me, only just makes her more heroic. And that's the thing about Serena Williams and Venus as well. And I, I wrote uh, an article saying that I thought Serena Williams was our Muhammad Ali. Uh, not because, obviously, she resisted a war or was in that kind of position, but when you think about Serena Williams coming from Compton, like just coming from Compton and becoming a professional tennis player, boom, that in and of itself, amazing. But coming from Compton, being a professional tennis player, and being absolutely unapologetic about who you are, wow, that's also impressive. But then not only do you come from Compton, not only are you unapologetic, but you also, gee, just happen to be the greatest to ever play, then you're in holy shit land, in terms of the levels with which she is able to climb in the context of what can be a, a very reactionary space. Um, one thing I thought I'm a big fan of Serena Williams. <laughs> I don't know if that, if that was what, clear. One thing that was so great, maybe 10 days ago or so, I think um, Colin Kaepernick um, went to the US Open. I saw some yeah. pictures online but with Serena and, and Colin. And do you have a sense that... Um, you know, I think we see in the NFL right now some of the players kind of, um, you know, backing each other up and speaking out for each other for, you know, those who decide to kneel and whatnot. But do you see maybe some coalitions being formed um, between different sports, like between Serena Williams and someone oh. like Colin Kaepernick? Oh, most definitely. I mean, the, the athletes who consider themselves uh, resistance athletes, uh, revolutionary athletes, athletes who are really trying to change the game and use sports, use that hyper-exalted brought to you by Nike platform of sports to say something about social justice, they're talking to each other now across the lines of sports in a way that they uh, rarely, if ever, did even in the 1960s. Uh, so this is like a very exciting moment for people who want to see those kinds of coalitions. There's a group called Athletes for Impact. People can look that up if you want to check it out. There's the Players Coalition in the National Football League. And then there are just these individual relationships which are being knitted together by athletes who are attempting to have each other's back. Um, and just sticking with um, Colin Kaepernick for a, for a second, um, it came up during the, the talk this afternoon about, you know, you, you mentioned that you see, you know, little, little kids, ninth grade football teams kneeling, or you see, you know, t-ball teams kneeling, or band members, or whatever. And the one group of people that you don't see kneeling um, are college athletes. And maybe you could explain some of the nuances and the differences why you really don't see that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you. <laughs> wow, here at Ohio State, yeah. let's let's discuss. Um, <laughs> I mean, the number one reason is that the NCAA is so authoritarian, college football teams are so authoritarian, and players aren't treated like the campus workers that they are, but instead are treated like quote-unquote student-athletes, although they have no rights, and because they're in that situation, there's no political space for them to express themselves. I mean, I spoke to college athletes who wanted to take a knee. I spoke to college athletes who wanted to raise a fist, but when you feel like, if I do that, not only am I sacrificing any chance at the NFL, but I'm sacrificing possibly my scholarship. I mean, the stakes become incredibly high, especially when they feel like this is their ticket. 
Take it out of poverty, take it out of uh, being in a situation where they're unknown, take it out of the, the, I think also some of the entitlement that comes with being a big time athlete, the praise, the love, all of that that comes with being a college athlete, all of that could be gone if you so much as say, gee, I don't think police officers should be able to kill people and then not be prosecuted for their crimes. Something like a, a political statement as simple as that, where which you have, you know, like the cheerleaders at Howard University taking a knee. You know, you have this, th these kids, uh, these high school kids who were playing uh, the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, they, they took a knee while they were playing it, including this kid who had a zoosophone, which if you know <laughs> what that is, I mean, it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. He like got down on his knee playing that note. I was like, that's more athletic than most things you see on a field. Uh, but, the, you know, I mean, so it, it's, if you have this idea that there's this movement out there called Black Lives Matter, and if you have this idea that you want to stand in solidarity with that or stand in solidarity with the families that have been affected by police violence, you should be able to do so in a free society. And what that speaks to to me more than anything else is that the NCAA is not a free society. It's like a constitution-free zone that's been carved out in the United States. Have you ever, in your 15-year career, um, is there any story that kind of compares to the Colin Kaepernick story? Uh, I mean, Colin, that's a great question. I mean, the the story, and I, and I think um, we were we were talking about it earlier today in class. But if you if you want to have a great uh, trivia question, if you're ever in a bar talking about resistance athletes, which is I'm sure what people do in their spare time, um, it's like, hey, let's talk about politics and sports, um, and say who is the first athlete to ever uh, sit during the anthem as a form of political protest. Uh, the answer is not Colin Kaepernick. It's not Mahmoud Abdul Rauf in 1996. Uh, it goes back to a woman named Rose Robinson, a black woman who was a track and field athlete, and she uh, would not uh, would not stand for the anthem, and she she did so out of a protest against the buildup of the U.S. nuclear arsenal in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. She saw herself as a pacifist, and so I think like stories like that, which aren't exactly subjects of ESPN 30 for 30s. I think those are the stories that are so valuable because it shows that when you have somebody like a Colin Kaepernick, that they're not inventing the wheel, that these struggles have in fact existed before. And of course, gotta give a shout out, you know, because we're about to hit the 50th anniversary in a couple weeks of Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the Mexico City Olympics and their protest uh, during the playing of the anthem where they raised their black love fists. They also weren't wearing shoes to protest poverty. They were wearing beads around their neck uh, to, 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 as, to symbolize this, the history of lynching and violence in this country. I did a book with John Carlos. Uh, he told me this great part of that story where right before they were about to go on the medal stand, Tommy Smith said to John Carlos, he said, what happens if somebody shoots us when we're up there? And it wasn't the craziest thing, because this is October 1968. You've already had Dr. King, Robert Kennedy killed that year. There was the killing of, of hundreds of Mexican students and workers right before the start of that Olympics that everybody knew about as a way to make the city hospitable for a global audience. And Tommy looks at John and says, what happens if they try to shoot us? And John says, well, you know, we're trained to listen for the gun. And, <laughs> and he said, and you know, we're kind of fast, so let's give it a try. And then they got up there, and as John said, you know, you could have heard a frog piss on cotton. That's how he described it, in terms of how soft it was. 
which is a very good visual if you think <laughs> about it, a frog peeing on cotton. And I think those, those kinds of stories are very important for mm -hmm. these athletes today. And I mean, one of the things that I know has given John Carlos uh, no measure of joy, um, just a, like an infinite amount of joy, is seeing this new generation of athletes sort of pick up where he left off. Um, your most recent book is, is Jim Brown, Last Man Standing, and that's one part I really enjoyed about the book is I didn't really realize the extent to which Jim Brown and their lives intersected a little bit. If you could um, talk about that a little bit, it was kind of eye-opening. Well, I mean, Jim Brown's life intersected with so many people. That's true. I mean, Raquel Welch, for one. <laughs> we can have, like, that's, that's for people of a certain generation, right? That's like... It's like, who the hell is Raquel? Um, but no, Jim, Jim Brown, it, I, I spent five years on this book. I was able to stay in Jim Brown's house for four days and talk to him when he wanted to talk to me, which wasn't often, but I like slept underneath his pool in this little cabana. Oh, okay. I was wondering how you sleep under, under a pool. Under a pool, right? <laughs> yeah, it sounds kind of ganky, but it was a nice little cabana and stuff. And, and uh, got to talk to him as much as I could. Um, and, you know, one of the things about Jim Brown is that, you know, he's this very complicated figure. Uh, and maybe can I just stop, you know, there's people that might not appreciate what Jim Brown, who Jim Brown is, what he represents, you know, where, yeah. where, what is his position in sports? I'll and start with this, arguably the greatest football player to ever live and arguably the greatest lacrosse player uh, <laughs> to ever live as well. Like lacrosse people will say the same thing. He also um, was the first person to ever just walk away from the NFL, in, basically in protest, because he was filming a movie called The Dirty Dozen, and Art Modell, I guess that's boo, Art mm -hmm. Modell, uh, the owner of the Cleveland Browns, uh, said he was going to fine him $5 a day for every day that he missed training camp. And Jim Brown um, read out a speech on the set of The Dirty Dozen where he said, I would refuse to be treated like anything less than a man. My manhood's important to me. And that's this constant theme with Jim Brown. It's like, it's this idea of his manhood. So Jim Brown was part of uh, 1960s struggles building these institutions called uh, black economic unions. And they were built primarily for, for young black men to involve themselves in business. He believed that capitalism and business was a way uh, to fight racism. And he then became a, a, a movie star in Hollywood in the 1970s, and he became somebody who was very famous uh, in terms of working with young people in gangs. And he also is somebody who has a long history of accusations and allegations of violence against women. And so this book, I tried to weave all of this together and talk about uh, this issue of manhood and how when people sort of accept this idea that the highest aspiration in life is this exalted hyper-masculinity that that comes with, uh, that we pay a tremendous price with that. And sorry, I derailed you. You're going to talk about how his life intersected with um, Tommy Smith. Oh, Tommy Smith yeah. and John Carl. Well, he, um, he, was, he signed Tommy Smith as a client because uh, Jim Brown for a while also worked an agency and uh, he lent Tommy Smith some money, and uh, then he dropped Tommy Smith as a client. I mean, Jim Brown was a cold man. He, he <laughs> there, there is no BS in him, I'll say that for him. And uh, he, I, wow, like made of granite. I mean, what did uh, Michael Eric Dyson, who I, I interviewed about Jim Brown, he called him a Greek god in African skin. 
And I, when I met Jim Brown, he's like 80 years old and still like his body looks like a series of craggy cubes on top of each other. And just it, it's, and he walks with a cane, but like I write, I write this in the book, I think like to call it a cane is like calling a Humvee a car. It's this <laughs> massive cane to, to support a very particular kind of body. And he's, he still is the intimidator in his 80s, absolutely. How are the stakes different for someone like um, Jim Brown, Bill Russell, back in the 1960s, compared to now, Colin Kaepernick, Serena Williams, um, Malcolm Jenkins, who went to yeah. Ohio State? How are, how are the stakes different? Yeah, shout out to Malcolm Jenkins. I mean, it, it's so interesting, because talk, talking to, it's so interesting. John Carlos allowed me to read his hate mail that he got after 1968 and the death threats that he received. And we're talking about a handful of letters and there's something chilling about somebody who takes the time to actually write out a death threat and mail it. And oftentimes it was written in very good, solid prose, like even starting with like, dear Mr. Carlos, and then going through how they were going to hurt them and their family and then signing it sincerely you know, as if they were, it, it, I mean, it's, just, and so you compare something like that to a thousand people sending you a Twitter message that's just like, F you, I'm going to kill you, things like that. And so I think that's one of, one of the toughest things for, for athletes today is to try to turn the noise of social media off as they go about uh, their political stances. And I also think athletes today, because of, because of money, the stakes are higher. Uh, than in the 1960s, but a difference is that in the 1960s, a lot of them were really doing it for the first time. Mm -hmm. So they were the, I mean, at least the athletes today are able to say, I stand in the tradition of mm -hmm. Tommy Smith and John Carlos. I stand in the tradition of Muhammad Ali. That was much more difficult for athletes in the 1960s to do, to talk about tradition in terms of political athletes, because the most political athlete was Jackie Robinson, and he was somebody who was actually in conflict with a lot of the athletes in the 1960s, seen as being of an earlier generation, an older generation, who didn't understand why their struggle needed to be as radical as it was. So the athletes today have the benefit of history, and that, that, that's absolutely invaluable. They also, unfortunately, have, um, they live in a society where they have constant access to everybody's hate, and that hate can be mainlined right into your veins at a moment's notice if you dare do anything. So it, it, it's, it's, definitely, it's, it's not a better or worse, but the number one comparison between then and now is that there were movements off the field that gave those athletes support. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have those movements, you're never gonna have athletes speak out, be political in a vacuum. You always need to have people in the streets. And you mentioned money, and another difference is, you know, um, a, an athlete, even like a fairly big-time athlete in the 60s, might have to have a second job um, in the off-season, whereas now if you sign one NBA contract, you if you manage your money right, you don't have to worry about it, which well, doesn't happen that often. But that um, If you manage money right, yeah. it becomes tough. Yeah. Uh, but, but athletes are actually managing their money better because the leagues finally woke up to the fact that it's very bad public relations if over 80% of athletes go broke within five years of retirement. So they're now much more uh, systematic in teaching athletes how to manage their money uh, coming out, which is a good thing. But then there, there's that question, though, of, okay, so you, 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 you're attaining this privilege through this money, and you have this fame. 
Do you still feel a connection from where you came from? Do you still feel like you need to stand in solidarity with where you came from? And someone like LeBron James answered that question by saying absolutely positively yes. And he said, and, and that's, to me, that, that changes hearts and minds in a really powerful way. When people speak out, when they don't have to speak out, but at the same time they're doing so because they feel this genuine connection with the communities that they come from, I mean, that's beautiful. And I, I gotta tell you, like, there, there's something so disgusting about the fact that we have somebody in the White House who sees that as a deficit. There's something so vile about the fact that, yeah, I mean, I can't get over it, that you, we have a president of the United States who instead of saying, isn't it a wonderful thing that athletes are speaking out about racism, instead saying, shut up and dribble. Um, we wanna definitely have some time for audience questions, um, but um, we have to uh, bring up our, the, the current situation at, at Ohio State. Ah. And, um, Is there a current situation? Well, instead of, I mean, I think, you know, even for people that live here, the circumstances of, of what happened and what is happening are so convoluted, but um, it does raise some issues about this marriage between, um, mm -hmm. you know, big time, big money, college athletics, and, um, you know, a, an institution of higher learning. And if you could maybe just speak to some of the, um, you know, contradictions that are inherent with that. Yeah, big picture. I think that's a marriage in desperate need of a divorce. I mean, we're the only country on earth that weds these two things, like institutions of higher learning that are also minor leagues for our professional basketball and, and, and football organizations. If you take a step back from it, like it makes no logical sense. Like the way it ideally would work is that if you're in high school and you show some talent to play these sports, yet you're not ready to play at the top professional level, that there would be a minor league where you can be paid and you could learn your craft. In other words, how every other sport operates, even in the United States, except for basketball and football. And basketball and football also happen to be the sports that our centra the centrality of the talent in these sports um, are black athletes and the black body. And that, that is to me not something coincidental at all. And it's, it's, I mean, unless you really believe in wild coincidences that people in the United States who suffer some of the most oppression and exploitation are also the people who, when they're in the sports pipeline, uh, find themselves in a position um, really of indentured servitude. It, it's something that I think, like if I, if I could wave a magic wand, um, I would, first of all, figuratively burn the NCAA to the ground, and I would try to organize college sports in a way uh, that where it, it existed independently of the universities. Knowing that that could never happen, I think college athletes uh, should be treated like the campus workers that they are. Um, I think it's ridiculous that uh, football coaches are the highest paid state employees in 39 of the 50 states in the United States. That's absurd. And I think that uh, the people who are actually putting their blood, sweat, and tears on the field are people who should be able to make some of the billions of dollars that ESPN shovels into uh, pro football, oh, I'm sorry, college football <laughs> and the NCAA. So that's the short of it. And I think that because you have a situation set up this way, like these scandals, 
whether you're talking about what happened at Ohio State, whether you're talking about you know, 10 minutes from where I live at the University of Maryland where a player died of heat stroke um, on the practice facility, and the school, by the way, wasn't gonna do anything about it until ESPN uh, did their own expo expose of what they called a toxic culture in terms of how the coach treated players. Um, or whether you're talking about something that's just beyond horrific like Penn State, uh, these kinds of things are an absolute inevitability with the current setup with the NCAA. An absolute, these kinds of scandals are an inevitability because so much exists uh, below the surface. It operates on what, I, I've, I've written about this and described it as a gutter economy because you can't pay people a fair wage for what they're doing and for the value and worth that they're producing, so what do you do instead? Uh, they're, they're paid other ways, they're paid in in favors, they're paid in looking the other way, they're paid in, um, uh, there's a reason why they call FSU, Florida State Free Shoes University, you know, they're paid in, 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 in all kinds of things. And oftentimes they're also paid in, uh, in the commodification and objectification of women on campus. So the, these kinds of things, I think, have created an NCAA system, not just in need of reform, but in, in need of, of drastic, drastic restructuring. And that's not to say football games aren't fun, and it's not to say that it's, it's not understandable why people have, have, have pride in, in these institutions and, and all the rest of it. It's just saying that we have to make these institutions more accountable and more honest than they currently are. But the one thing that I actually drew hope from with this everything that's happened with Urban Meyer on campus was, I mean, th there was a time, and when I say there was a time, I mean as recently as a couple of years ago, I think, where stories like this would not even reach the light of day. And so if there wasn't like a Me Too movement in this country, there's no way that these issues even come out. There's no way that people uh, rally around them and even care about them. And so for too many decades, the college coach has been like this unipolar power on the college campus. And I think one thing you're seeing with this is that no, there are other interests uh, that exist. And that is a tremendous positive. Um. Maybe before we open it up, if you could pick one person from the, you know, kind of thinking about the subject of people's history of sports, who's someone that maybe casual sports fans wouldn't know about that, that um, is worth knowing more for their position at, at the intersection of sports and social justice? Someone from the past. Oh, man. See, I, it's so interesting. I would go with, I didn't know that question was coming, so I'm sort of... Sorry. No, it's okay. I, I, I didn't know any of these questions were coming. <laughs> um, that, that there was a player named Craig Hodges in the early 1990s who was pushed out of the NBA, not signed, terrific three-point shooter, and he, he had two great crimes that had him um, colluded against and kicked out of the NBA. One of his crimes was he, after the Chicago Bulls won the uh, NBA championship in 92, uh, George Bush was president, and he showed up to the White House wearing a daishiki, which was, I mean, considered scandalous at the time. And he handed George Bush a letter uh, saying to him uh, about, like, I want you to do more to uh, stop war and fight racism. It was like his own like mini, like, dear Mr. President, this is my manifesto for how we'd get a better world. And that was just seen as this horrific breach of protocol. Uh, the other thing was that he went after Nike. I mean, he had Michael Jordan on his team and he said, Nike is not a force of social justice. It's kind of interesting, this coming up now with the 
Colin Kaepernick ad and the like. And, and he took on Nike and encouraged people to like to, to drop their shoe companies if they weren't giving money back into the community. And these things were just seen as a bridge too far, uh, especially what he, in 1991, when the Lakers and the Bulls played the championship, he tried to get uh, um, Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan to say that they wouldn't play in the games unless Nike made an investment into their communities. And that wasn't looked on upon. <laughs> So, 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 so you know, Craig Hodges, who I, who I speak to sometimes, and I wrote the introduction to his book that came out called Long Shot. I mean, he's kind of my hero because, I mean, he sacrificed a tremendous amount of money. He lives a, 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 working, a working person's life right now, like hand to mouth on week in, week out basis. But he's very proud of who he is and very proud of what he does uh, because he stood on principle. And it reminds me of something that John Carlos said uh, when I asked him if he had any regrets, he said, I don't have regrets. Uh, the people who have regrets are the people who were with me in 1968 and chose to do nothing. Like, those are the people who have regrets. And I think that's something that Craig Hodges believes, and that's something uh, I take very close to heart. Questions from the audience? Yes. Colin Kaepernick has donated a great deal of money mm -hmm. to the community, and yet that remains kind of a best kept secret. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, he's donated over a um, million dollars in various installments to different organizations. I think it's amazing because one of the things that Colin has done is that he's created a bridge between philanthropy and activism. Like the groups that he gives money to are groups that do activist work, are groups that try to uh, help immigrant uh, families and the groups that fight deportation. And, and he gave um, uh, enough money to build a health clinic in, uh, where they were protesting the D Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, I mean, things like that are, are just make him a very heroic person. And, you know, he's doing this Nike campaign right now. And I thought it was great that he made Nike commit to giving money to these camps that he does uh, called um, Know Your Rights. And I, I was at one of those Know Your Rights camps and saw the way that Colin interacts with young people. And it's, it's a remarkable thing to see. Like he, he's an, an amazing person with the soul of an activist. Um, I don't think he would have asked to be in this situation that he's in right now. But he's, you know, he's doing his thing. And there's a, there's a lot to say about it, but uh, I, I think I'll leave it at that. Or I'll say one last thing. Like he, um, there's this line from, I think, Shakespeare who said, some are born great and some have greatness thrust upon them. I mean, Colin Kaepernick would not be comfortable like on a stage talking to people. He'd be very comfortable, though, like in the back handing out pamphlets to people so they know what to do next. And that, that's, so it's, I, I think it's just pretty special the way he's tried to step to this challenge, even though it was a challenge that he never asked for and a challenge that doesn't necessarily fit his personality, which is uh, very soft-spoken. Yes, in the middle. No. Um, and I think that because I think the NFL has so much invested in him not playing again. I mean, they want him to become a ghost story. Uh, they want him to become something that they can say, hey, you don't want to end up like Colin Kaepernick. I mentioned Craig Hodges and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf before. Um, friends of mine who played in the NBA, they, would, they were told all the time, like, hey, you don't want to end up like, like, like Craig Hodges. You don't want to end up like Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. They become used 
as a way to tell people to just stay in line and not do anything um, and not speak out um, in a way that I'm sure someone at Ohio State, um, someone who I think is an amazing human being named Maurice Claret, I'm sure he's been used in the same way um, as a way to say to people, yeah, don't challenge the system, don't challenge the NCAA. And I think the, the NFL, they have so much invested in using Colin Kaepernick as a way to keep people in line. That being said, I think they failed at this. And rather than being a ghost story, he's become a point of inspiration. But it's like they have invested so much in him being this ghost story, it's gonna be very difficult uh, for to him to get back on, onto the field. And yes, I do think they've colluded against him. And yes, I hope he gets a billion dollars from the, from the NFL. I hope he gets his own team by the time this is all done. <laughs> and every, every time someone like, and this is a little inside sports on you, I'm sorry about this one, but, but anytime like someone like Nathan Peterman takes the field, there's a part of me that's just like, ah, that's exhibit C. <laughs> and like, there's such bad quarterback play. It just becomes uh, just more evidence that he's been colluded against and he should, he should win. I think you in the yellow had a question. Yeah, um, shout out to Maurice Claret, thank you. Um, so I'm a woman and I'm a survivor and I'm a really big fan of gymnastics and football sports. And I just find myself so worn out trying to follow these sports that I love. And I'm just a fan, you did this in your job. So I'm wondering how you, I guess, what kind of things you do for self care or having to follow all stories? I mean, I don't, first of all, thank you so much. And I, I don't want to woe is me this at all, like, but, but it, it ain't easy. Because, um, I mean, once you see how the sausages are made, you never quite, you know, look at rat feces the same way again. It's, <laughs> and, and, and to have to kind of live in your mind that that's disgusting and sausages taste really good. And it's like, how do you, how, how do you reckon, for me, uh, the, the way I, I, tr I try to practice self-care um, in terms of these sports is, is to just really try to focus on, on the beauty of what I'm watching. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're a fan of gymnastics, then I don't need to tell you how ugly that can be uh, behind the scenes. But the athletes themselves are so remarkable. And so to, to be able to enjoy that while also being conscious of what's happening can be a very difficult thing to walk. And I think there, there have been some sports where, that I've had to, to give up altogether. Like I, it's, it's odd to say this in Columbus, but you know, it's, it's hard for me to consume college football at this point. Like after years and years of being a fan of college football and covering college football, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I need to triage a little bit. And I don't know if I can do this because I know how a lot of the athletes are being treated. And, and I know who's getting rich off this and who's getting exploited. So some of that is making some tough choices about what I consume and what I don't consume. Another thing that helps a lot is um, uh, TiVo. <laughs> or is, does TiVo still exist or is that very 2005? Um, if you have a DVR, some sort of DVR that allows you to avoid commercials at all costs. Uh, it is also a, a self-care mechanism. I thought like you were watch, saying Tebow. Oh, not Tebow. <laughs> no, I get no self-care from Tebow. Um, <laughs> 
but 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 anything that allows you to watch sports with about a forty-five minute delay, so you can avoid commercials and as much of the BS that comes with sports as possible, uh, to me is a form of self-care. And then ju just the last thing is like getting off the couch uh, helps a lot, um, but that's more of a general self-care thing because the couch is awesome. Yes. Um, on the same line, Malcolm Jenkins is a leader. Uh, Malcolm Jenkins is somebody who's going to be doing more in the weeks and months to come. Um, and you're going to be hearing Malcolm Jenkins' name in the weeks and months to come. Nothing that I can say. At a, at a recorded meeting, but but he's just scratching the surface in terms of what he's going to do and the kind of politics that he's going to access. Uh, he, he and I think the way he's done it has been has been really smart um, and powerful, and it's been a really amazing thing to witness. And I feel closer to it now because yeah, I did this book with Michael Bennett, who's now on the team with the Eagles, and he talks to me about how Malcolm interacts with the other players and how they've interacted and talked about politics and it, it's just it, it's it's a tribute to who Malcolm is it's a tribute to uh, his time here at Ohio State and whoever influenced him along the way no question way in the back yeah so I had a, I had a question about FIBA um, yikes uh, but uh, we talked about athletes uh, of slave labor to create uh, the stadiums, uh, workers who've died of heat exposure. Yeah, this is the self-care issue becomes really important because, my goodness, I mean, the World Cup it isn't, can be this incredibly unifying spectacle, and I don't even know how that's going to work in Qatar. I mean, let alone, like, I was in Rio for the World Cup, uh, the, the, la the last one before Russia, and I mean, the cognitive dissonance of being there and covering demonstrations against the building of stadiums and being tear gassed and having concussion grenades and then like limping away from these demonstrations and then, you know, having a, a press pass to go in and watch the game while I, you know, smell of tear gas. I mean, it, it was difficult to do. And I don't even know how um, the players themselves. First, it's going to be so disruptive because they're going to be doing it in the fall, not over the summer, because they couldn't handle the, the heat of the summer and, and Cutter's promise of having these hyper air-conditioned stadiums, which, by the way, would have been hideous for the environment. Like, that just didn't happen. So I think there's going to be a social pressure on players to speak out, the likes of which uh, they, ha they have never experienced before. So even though you don't have a lot of like big time soccer players who've spoken out on some of the, on issues related to FIFA, I mean some of them have spoken out definitely on issues relating to racism in the sport and things of that nature. Uh, 
But as far as like actually the way FIFA operates, there is going to be a social pressure on them to speak. So keep your eyes open on that. Definitely. In the middle. Yeah. Wow. So you're eight years ahead of the <laughs> of the curve. I was asked to do a talk on uh, Muhammad Ali at Kent State, which is pretty near here, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of? Yep. Well, Two yeah. hours. And it was mandatory attendance for the football team to go. And the football team showed up, and a lot, a lot of the players, they had earbuds in because they were like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to go to this, and which I more than understood, was more than sympathetic to. And it was, you know, a lot, a lot of black players, a lot of white players, and interacting with each other, you know, very integrated in terms of how they were talking to each other, joking with each other. You saw that solidarity, that easy camaraderie. And then I started talking about, uh, about racism. I started talking about why Muhammad Ali was attracted to the Nation of Islam. And I was like, yeah, he believed white people were devils. And I'm like saying this stuff. And this was a lot of things that they hadn't necessarily heard before. And I was like, and this is why Muhammad Ali was against the war in Vietnam, because he said, uh, you know, why should I go 10,000 miles from home to pursue uh, the, the war aims of the white slave masters of the world and kill uh, brown people in Vietnam while so-called Negro people are treated like dogs in Louisville? Like, so I was saying stuff like that. And what I found as I was doing this talk is that uh, black players on the team were, were leaning in like the, the, the headphones were out and, and feeling it. And the white players were shrinking back. And that easy solidarity that was there at the start, when once politics were a part of it, you saw it fracture. And I think you've seen something similar with these players who have started to kneel uh, to protest police brutality. What I find so interesting is that at the professional level, I mean, there's only been uh, one white player who's taken a knee. Uh, his name's Sean DeValve for the Cleveland Browns. Um, but even like a gesture as simple as a white player putting a hand on the shoulder of Malcolm Jenkins while he puts his fist up, I mean, you'd think uh, you know, he was Nelson Mandela, the way they talk about it, like a gesture so small. What makes me hopeful is that when you talk about the high school athletes who've taken a knee, it's much more multiracial. And like the entire Garfield football team, which is about 50% white, 50% black, Garfield is a big high school in Seattle. One of the things that they said is they said like, look, you know, the coach tells us all the time that we're like a family. So if a member of our family is upset about something, then it has to upset me too. And there you see the power of sports to bring people together. Because I, I said this, in the class earlier today, like I'm a big believer that sports is like fire, and fire can either burn down your house or cook a meal. 
You know, it's all about how you use it. And so I've seen the way the solidarity that can exist in sports can at times be really destructive. Like players not wanting to speak out if another player is accused of sexual assault, for example. And they create this ridiculous line that says, well, we're not going to criticize, you know, things of that nature because it's a teammate. But then you also see it when, it's, when it has to do with maybe it's a labor issue, maybe it's an issue about fighting racism, maybe, um, I'm trying to think of other examples of it, but when, when players have actually been able to come together, uh, it can be really powerful and important and inspiring. And that's the best part of sports. And like, I, I was no great athlete in high school. Like I was the starting center for my high school basketball team, I'm 5'10". So, I mean, we, we really sucked. Um, <laughs> we, we were called the Fighting Quakers of New York, which is, that, that's not going to scare a lot of people. But two of my best friends on earth were, were, are, are, I met on that team, and we're still like best friends. And that's something I wouldn't trade, even with all my contradictions and need for self care that exists in doing this work. Hey, that's Clark Kellogg. Oh, I think way in the back. Yeah, with his hand up. David, appreciate you. Um, I have a couple of questions. Yes, sir. You coached your son's basketball team, you said? Yes, sir. I'm just curious as to what age he is. Uh, he, uh, was at the time, he just turned 10, so he was nine years old. Okay. And then the second part is, what you're doing now, is this something you envision doing? What led you down this path? writing what you write, talking about what you talk about in terms of this intersection, activism, sports, and politics. Is this something you've always thought you were going to do? And if not, when did the light come on? Wow. First of all, I, I, thank you so much for the question. I, I, I wish you had been a New York Nick. That would, <laughs> I, this is what this is what I grew up with. Like, why don't we have Clark Kellogg? Um, um, I, I mean, I, I got to like the experience of coaching my son was terrific uh, because it was able just to see this youth sports world from that pers- from the perspective of being a coach, not just being a parent or a journalist. Because and then it had to reckon with my own emotions. Like I found myself getting very competitive and then having to be self-conscious about that and be and also like how much of my own self-worth am I actually getting from the victories of nine-year-old kids that's kind of twisted but I would also be not telling the truth if I didn't say like those emotions were real so it was more about like checking my own emotions than, than denying that it was happening because, I mean, anytime you can get, I mean, when, when I have nine-year-olds running set plays, I mean, we had them running like four different plays. The other team didn't know what they were doing. And it was, <laughs> and it felt really good. But I was like, okay, it can't feel too good. <laughs> like, like, I just need some perspective. Like, are they learning teamwork? Are they being good sports? Are we teaching the right lessons at this age? And so that, that was like the, the constant voice in my, in my head. Um, as far as writing about the politics of sports and trying to comment on it, I mean, to me, it's just like gr- just growing up an absolute sports 
fanatic. I mean, memorizing the backs of baseball cards, uh, going to games whenever I could, playing whatever I could, and and then just, I don't know, really being radicalized by Mahmoud Abdul Rauf's stance in 1996 and not standing for the flag, because what that is, I was in college at the time, fortunately, and I had... And, and I had a professor who said, like, oh, well, then, if you're interested in that, then you must know the story of Muhammad Ali. And I was like, yeah, he, he, he was against the war, right? I, I didn't know anything. So then he gave me some books. And so I was like, then I'm reading. And then what I found was that reading, which was, I mean, I did it, but it was always a chore, all of a sudden became a joy. And books became, felt like, I mean, felt like weapons to me you know, like in some battle to, to reclaim sports. Like I started thinking about, I mean, I was, I was 20, so, you know, you know, so forgive me for being a little fantastical about it, but just all of a sudden reading like was, was not a chore, but it was something, there just wasn't enough time in the world to read every book I wanted to read. And that, that made me then want to add to that. I was like, okay, if other people have written these books, you know, I want to write some too. So that's where that came from. Yeah, Dave, what are your, what are your thoughts on the concussion issue in general? Yeah. Well, the NFL and college football can do more. And how should how should parents think about this? You know, with, with their sons and daughters playing sports and what particular sports they play or may not play. If you didn't hear it in the back, the questions about concussions. Um, concussions. Well, this, it's so interesting how far we've, we've come. My, my father-in-law was an All-American football player, and when my son was born, he gave him a little helmet and a little football and was like, oh, I'm already like looking up some of the peewee teams, and he was already into it. And, and my wife was like, there's no way he's going to play football. And me, I was kind of like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not going to say anything. My father-in-law's here. I'm going to just stay out of it. Um, not really, but he kind of intimidated me a little bit. But, but the, what's been so interesting is like now it's 10 years later, and my father-in-law doesn't want him to play football. And he, so it's just, that just says a lot to me that, like, it's like the more we know, the more parents and grandparents in this case want to keep their kids from the game. And my own personal take on it, having read a lot of the science, having read uh, the book The Concussion by Bennett Omalu, which I, I highly recommend, uh, the more I look at this, the more I think football is very similar to smoking. And it's similar to smoking in this way. Uh, you have all of these reforms to make the game safer. The same way you can take a cigarette and have it have less tar or a bigger filter. But there's no such thing as a cancer-free cigarette. And there's just no such thing as safe concussion-free football, no matter how many rules they're changed. And so once you know that as a fact, you realize that science is really not this sport's friend. And my fear is that in the years to come, you're going to have more and more um, middle-class families keep their kids from playing sports. You already see Pop Warner doesn't even release their numbers anymore because they release numbers showing that uh, in, I think, 2012 that a huge number of a few, fewer kids were playing Pop Warner. And now they don't even put those numbers out uh, because they, they, they look so bad. And so that means that the sport's going to become more and more, I think, I fear, gladiatorial even more than it is now, with tickets becoming more expensive and players 
if anyone has seen Last Chance You on Netflix, which I could not recommend highly enough, by the way. It's amazing. Um, more and more players who are coming from situations where it's sports is literally like the thinnest thread to get them out of dire poverty. So that, that's my feelings on concussion. It's not happy. But I'll tell you one weird thing about the cigarette smoking analogy, and I think about this a lot, is you meet somebody who say that they're a smoker in their 70s, and oftentimes they'll say, I don't want my kids smoking, and I wish I'd never picked up a cigarette. That's generally what you hear if you meet someone who's been able to live that long as a smoker. When you meet football players who are that old, oftentimes they say, more often than not, yeah, I don't want my kid to play football, but then they say, but I don't regret playing, which is really, it says something about the pull of the camaraderie for the person who asked that question. The pull of the camaraderie is so strong and the memories of that are so strong that even players who've experienced tragedy, it's hard to get them to say, I wish I'd never picked up a ball. Well, two more questions. Yes. So, Dave, I, I agree with your take on the NCAA. I would like nothing more than to see it kind of collapse under its own weight of its hypocrisy. What do you think has to happen for, for, for that? What breakthrough needs to happen? Because it doesn't seem like the legal system is going to step in in terms of Maurice Claret's case. How do we get rid of the NCAA? Does it have to come from the fans? Does it have to be a, a wildcat strike during an NCAA Final Four? I mean, you know, how do we get there? I mean, I think one way, it's, you mentioned some ways. Uh, one way to get there that would be the most dramatic, and please don't think players have never talked about this before, would be um, a couple of players on each team before the Final Four saying we're not going to take the court until we have some discussion about revenue, sharing revenue, and what that could look like going forward. I mean, especially if they announced it like a week in advance. If they were, I mean, the NCAA, I think, would move in a situation like that. Instead of doing what they often do, which is they call these summits to speak about the state of the NCAA, and they don't invite student athletes to be a part of it. Like the very voice that you need to hear is not part of the discussion. That was one of the things that inspired the Northwestern players, uh, football players, to talk about organizing a union, is because they, they, for two reasons. One, they were dumbfounded when they heard about the NCAA having one of these summits and knowing see, there were no student athletes there. The, the other thing that really inspired them to do it is that they took, they were taking a labor law class and they applied what they were learning, they were like learning about labor law and they were like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. This sounds very much like our situation right here. It's like, and, and they got in a lot of trouble for that. And I was like, my goodness, isn't that what you're supposed to do in college? Like you take a class, you learn something, you apply it to your life, which is exactly what these Northwestern players uh, attempted to do. So I think organizing, organizing, organizing is the way it's gonna happen, I think. Um, that if, if you ask players, it's unbelievable. Like if you ask players, do you think that you deserve some of this? They're, they're all gonna say yes. They're all gonna say that we deserve a piece of this pie, especially with the incredible amount of money that goes in with, uh, with, with ESPN and, and with, with cable television money. But you're absolutely right. Like getting there involves a level of risk that for a lot of these players is just too much. Like if you feel like you can't take a knee how are you going to feel like you're going to organize a wildcat strike? So there, there's a ways to go. And 
you know, I'm I'm grateful for the very few, like the Nigel Hayes of the world, Wisconsin. Uh, certainly for Maurice Claret, for everybody, uh, for Kane Coulter, the quarterback at Northwestern, um, Shane Battier when he played at Duke, like every athlete, the Fab Five, like every athlete who has said there's something wrong here and tried to raise awareness about that. Um, speaking of uh, labor law and parallels with Colin recently in the last couple years, I'm curious, I've not really seen any parallels um, with Kurt Flood, um, mm. that Major League Baseball uh, individual that really was kind of the forefront of mm-hmm. labor law in the United States. I'm just curious if your, your thoughts on maybe the parallels. I mean, the, the main parallel that I see is not really a parallel. It's that like Kurt Flood... If people don't know who he is, he challenged the reserve clause in Major League Baseball. He really sacrificed his career. Uh, someone once said that like Alex Rodriguez should give 10% of every paycheck he's ever gotten to Kurt Flood's family uh, because, I mean, it really did crack open the salaries in the system. And that's actually really not dissimilar to the NCAA because like once things start to move, they can move very, very quickly. And so before Kurt Flood, it was like this idea of free agency was like, oh, no, it'll ruin the sport. It can never happen. You're talking about the destruction of Major League Baseball, the same way people in the NCAA say, what, what treat uh, student athletes as if they're campus employees. That will absolutely destroy what it is we're trying to do. And it's like, no, it's not going to destroy it. It's just going to make it a little more equitable. And maybe Nick Saban won't be the wealthiest person in Alabama. Boo frickin' who? You know, that's, that's, that's fine. And, but, but, to, but to take it uh, to your question about the similarities with Colin Cameron and Kurt Flood, the saddest part of the Kurt Flood story is that he ended up very isolated and alone. And if you read the, the tremendous book about Kurt Flood called A Well-Paid Slave, I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, it's really well done. But by the end of the 1970s, like, he, found, he was in a state of destitution. Um, so instead of being like highly appreciated for a sacrifice, uh, he found himself very isolated. And that, to me, is a learning from history moment uh, with regards to Colin Kaepernick and make sure that doesn't happen with him. You know, one of the most touching moments I've experienced at this intersection of sports and politics was a year ago. There was a rally uh, in front of NFL headquarters for Colin Kaepernick, about 1,000 people there. And it's right, by the way, it was right on like 50th and Park Avenue, which isn't used to seeing 1,000 people rallying uh, on the streets, so that was in and of itself got a lot of stares. And there, a 94-year-old woman spoke who had been uh, part of the civil rights movement for over 70 years. Like she, the stories she had when I spoke to her were unbelievable. Like talking about organizing in the 1940s to desegregate buses in the South, and she got up there and she said, she said, you know, one of my greatest regrets is that in the 1960s we all took inspiration from Muhammad Ali, but we weren't there for Muhammad Ali. And she said, we need to be there for Colin Kaepernick. So I think that learning from history becomes really important. We have to make sure that Colin Kaepernick doesn't become the 21st century Kurt Flood. I think that's a great one to end on. Um, Dave is going to be outside the WEX store signing books. Um, So you're more than welcome to um, continue the conversation out there. I would ask if you can let Dave get out of the theater so he can start... Yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a madhouse of people grabbing yeah. at me, but um, it happens. Thank you. Thank all you, Dave, very so much. much. I appreciate it.
That was Dave Zirin, sports editor for The Nation, with The Wex's film video director, Dave Philippi. Thanks for listening to WexCast. For more information about the Wexner Center for the Arts and its programming, go to wexarts.org.